build the best product. I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now. For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing. Cause no unnecessary harm. Of organic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To give some love back to this river that doesn't have any. It's not getting any love. See what drives us at patagonia.com. Welcome to the Dirtbag Diaries, a duct tape and beer production, with additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. Once you start, you're really committed. There's no easy way out of the canyon. I've done a bunch of significant trips that are five days, seven days, ten days long. And I mean, I feel really privileged to have spent multiple trips in Alaska and, and remote places on other continents. And During those trips, you typically will just keep using normal time reference points, like Monday, Tuesday, or the fifth day, or seventh of a month. But in the Grand, that starts to fade away. It's fair to say, in my experience, that the Grand Canyon is the most remote place in the lower 48. When you're down there, you just go back to, I don't know, this most basic Neanderthal level where... The map really becomes like your calendar, in a sense. Your day-to-day -day reality just becomes, who's going to make dinner tonight? Where are we sleeping tonight? And where am I going to go to the bathroom? In the first couple miles, you pass the two bridges that you'll see for the entirety of the trip. And if there's any rescue to be done with, like, say, a chopper, it has to happen in one of a few designated areas. And that remoteness, I think, is, is what draws us all into the wilderness. That's the magic of the Grand Canyon. That's why you see it on the bucket list at National Geographic and Outside Magazine. It is deeply worthy. Wilderness, deep wilderness, has this ability to bend time. By breaking routine at home, the world slows down, the pace shifts, and it becomes hard to imagine what life back at home, back at the office, is moving forward at its usual relentless pace. In the Grand Canyon, for two or three weeks, you disappear from life as you know it, and it feels like you are at the bottom of the world. Here's John Stoneman. Why the big deal about the Grand Canyon? It really is grand. It's, it's huge. It's giant water. And once you get into it, you realize how small you are. John lives just south of Seattle in a town called Normandy Park, on a quiet bit of land that was once his grandfather's. He works in an ER. He's a passionate, long-distance cyclist. He has this quiet intensity about him. It's the kind of thing that hovers around people who have learned to work long hours with little sleep. He didn't know much about boating or rafting, but like so many of us, he knew that a trip down the Grand Canyon was an opportunity you do not pass up. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So in 2010, he and his partner, Christine, they made the pilgrimage that all of us should hope to do. It turns out the expectations are well-deserved. It's a phenomenally beautiful place. It's an extremely remote place. In fact, we had the discussion around the campfire one night of trying to define what is wilderness. Is it trees? Is it isolation? And we determined that if you get hurt or you have a problem and there's really no way out, <laughs> you're in the wilderness. And the Grand Canyon is certainly that. Commitment. That's the ticket of entry into true wilderness. What happens, though, when you need to get out? When the one place you need to be is a thousand miles away and you are off the grid? Well, in this case, as cheesy as it might sound, the grid takes care of you. Today, we present The Rebirth of Belief, a story about a race against time and the lengths perfect strangers will go to help others in needs. I'm Fitzcahal, 
and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. I guess this all started back in uh, early 2010. Christine started talking about wanting to do a trip down the Colorado in early 2010. In November, they put in at Lee's Ferry with five rafts, six kayaks, and 13 other people. John and Christine knew a handful of people on the trip, but nobody knew everyone when they started floating downstream. First of all, I think anytime a group of people has to come together to help support one another in a whether it be a wilderness or a survival or any sort of a extreme outdoor activity, you're either going to bond together or you're going to blow apart. By the end of the trip, we were probably tighter than any family any of us had ever belonged to. You couldn't have asked for a better group of people. And so for us, the expectations that were so high going in, they were more than exceeded. Five days into the trip, they hit Phantom Ranch the last remnant of civilization they would encounter on the remainder of their trip. There's a little, you know, resort, there's a restaurant, some cabins, and it's a place that you can buy souvenirs and have your stuff mailed out of the canyon. Yeah, it's kitschy and it's touristy, you know, they have your mail delivered by donkey. Kitschiness aside, John and Christine decided to send a postcard home to his parents in Seattle. They were always interested in where I was going, especially my dad. He enjoyed hearing stories about where I'd been and what I'd done. I thought, hey, you know, of course, parents are going to worry. They always worry. And so I just wanted to let them know that, hey, I'm five days in. I'm still alive. So stop worrying. <laughs> it was a big panoramic shot of, of the canyon, all the colors, the water. You know, I'm sure I wrote things like great group of people, weather's good, having a blast. But I finished it by saying this is without a doubt the trip of a lifetime. And the way it went. That turned out to be kind of the lifeline for me to get me home. The group continued down the river for another week and a half. As one of the people who had little boating experience, John became one of the three team members who rotated through on the inflatable kayaks. And that meant he spent the first day swimming a lot as he tried to navigate what, in canyon terminology, is known as Class 8 Rapids, in a ducky. He started a lot of evenings with a booty beer for each time he swam. He swam a lot before he started learning how to read the water. By day 16, he was starting to get the hang of river life. It was still early in the, early in the morning. and We had just started out. I was in a ducky and was out ahead of just about everybody, I think. And, and as soon as I heard the blades of that chopper, I knew immediately what it was. I could hear them from miles off because they were flying low in the canyon. And I just started paddling as hard as I could. Probably a couple hundred yards ahead of me that there was a bend in the river and a large grassy area that looked like an area where a chopper could set down. And as this helicopter flew down the canyon over my head, I looked up and I saw NPS on the bottom of it. And at that point, my heart sank. I met them probably a minute or two after they had sat down, and uh, the flight crew was already out of their chopper, and they were waiting on the banks of the river. And the first things out of their mouth was, hey, 
we're looking for, I said, it's me. And I said, it's my dad, isn't it? And he said, yeah. I said, he, we, we don't know exactly how bad he is, but he's taking a turn for the worse. Had that card not come, we wouldn't have known where to start looking for him. This is John's best friend, Ken. They grew up together in Normandy Park. John, he had apprehensions when he left town that it might be a bad time to leave town. John was really worried about his dad. I had a long heart-to-heart with him one day and said, uh, Dad, I'm just not going to go. I'm, you know, you're, you're too ill. I'm not going to take the chance of having you go downhill while I'm gone. And he, he would have nothing to do with that. What he didn't know is that that would be the time that his dad, you know, after 29 years of fighting uh, leukemia, finally just said, you know what, I'm done. I'm not going to take all kinds of extra efforts here with medications and what have you. I don't care what else is going on in everybody else's life at this time. And that wasn't selfish. He was so supportive of everything, every endeavor, whether it were athletic, scholastic, whatever. He was always supportive. Jack had put himself out to an extreme for years, and he had just grown tired. And he just said, I just got to either get better or die. And I'd go to bed every night, probably with some kind of a false sense of security that my dad was okay, because I hadn't heard anything. No news is good news. Well, what, what the hell am I expecting to hear out there? You know, with that said, we knew it was time to get John home right away. John's family did what any family would do. They called the National Park Service, desperate for help. Could they get a hold of John? Here's where our facts get a little murky because the Park Service refused to talk about this on the record, saying only that what happened next wasn't standard protocol, before clarifying that the bureaucratic protocol systems for search and rescue don't even have a protocol for this scenario. Under the massive agency that is the Department of the Interior overseeing the NPS, this kind of thing does not happen. They reiterated there is no official record of this happening. No one remembers this happening. The National Park Service said, we're going to make one pass down the canyon. And they said, if we don't spot them, or if we spot them and there's no reasonable place to land and you know meet up with them, we're only going to try this once. Because of the permitting system, the Park Service knew that John's group was the one with five rafts and four kayaks. And from the postcard, they were able to figure out what day the party had made it to Phantom Ranch and where that meant they would probably be 10 days later. For someone to airlift me out of the canyon, I knew it had to be serious. They were moving as fast as they could to get me out of there. They knew that theirs was just one in a many-segmented trip that was going to be required to get me home. Uh, it's a pretty empty feeling. Not only was I leading all these, all these great people and this phenomenal experience that I've been having behind, but it, it's almost like it completely whitewashed you know, the last 16 days of enjoyment. It just nullified it. 
John was 1,200 miles from Normandy Park, Washington. His father was dying. He was going to get home that night. So they dropped me at the uh, ranger station. I walked from the ranger station to the visitor center and I started looking for buses or trains or anything that would get me from there to Flagstaff to try to then catch a flight home. I was unable to find anything there, so I walked a couple of miles down to the train station. I was gonna get on a train and go somewhere. No more trains. He walked across the street to the El Tovar Hotel. I struck up a conversation with the concierge told her my story, and she immediately went to work trying to help out. I was at the concierge desk, so that was our job, to help whoever came up. And Here's Joanna, the concierge that John spoke with. He looked like he, he was stressed, and really all we knew was that he needed to get a quick flight to, to Seattle. Because getting out of the park and getting to an airport, is, it's not a fast process normally. John and Joanna started researching flights out of Phoenix and Flagstaff. They also needed a way to get from the park to the airport. She told me that she knew a fellow that ran a, a taxi service, just a single vehicle taxi service. And he would, he would oftentimes come from Flag to the canyon and pick people up and take them to Flagstaff or to Phoenix or to wherever they wanted to go. Joanna called the driver, Tim. Tim was 30 minutes out. Anyway, Tim made the trip from Flag to Maswick and he shows up. His wife was with him. They're the, the owner and the co-owner of the company. And they always travel together to keep each other company. And I had to tell him, I'm sorry, Tim, this, this trip isn't going to happen. I've got, I've got nowhere to go. There's no flights out of Flag. There's no flights out of Phoenix. When we arrived at the Altavara Hotel, we found out that he um, couldn't get a flight from Flagstaff to Phoenix and from Phoenix to Washington because they had nothing available. So me and Kathleen both said, well, what about Vegas? Try Vegas. And they got right on the phone and called, and they got him right on a flight there. It was 3.30 in the afternoon. The flight took off at 8 p.m. and it's 300 miles from the south rim of the canyon to Las Vegas. It was something like a, like a late model Impala. It was a four-door. We didn't know if we could make it there on time. And as I'm standing there talking to him, I said, look, can you make this trip? Can you do 300 miles in four hours or three hours to get me there before check-in and all? And he thought about it for a couple of seconds. He goes, I can do this. I said, are you sure? You gotta be sure. He said, I'm sure. So we drove a little bit over the speed limit at times to get him there. Didn't waste any more time. Threw my bag in his car and away we went. This guy uh, even had time to stop for gas. <laughs> Usually it takes a good three and a half to four hours, and I believe we were there in about three hours or under. I remember being in the car after a couple of hours. Uh, I got a text from uh, my good friend Ken. He, um, he texted me to let me know that Dad was pretty ill, and he wasn't sure if he was going to make it through the night. Sometimes you have to accept what's laid out in front of you. I wasn't willing to. I knew that I had to do something more, that there was going to be nothing that stopped me from getting, getting home that night. As uh, the guy that lost his father, I kind of felt the sympathy for him of what he was going through. My father passed away years ago and we were told at the time that he had six months to live and he died three months later with cancer all through his body. So I really felt for John and uh, just wanted to get in there as quick as possible and prayed that he made it home in time to spend some time with his father. 
John said goodbye to Tim, worked his way through security, and figured he'd get some food while he waited for his flight to board. And as I'm standing waiting to get a hamburger somewhere, I overheard the uh, last call for boarding to Seattle. A different flight, leaving one hour earlier than the one John was already booked on. I dropped whatever I was doing at that point. And I, don't, I don't generally sprint through airports. <laughs> I did this time. I ran to the gate. The door was actually closed. And I told the lady, I said, I, I really need to get on this plane. And I explained my situation to her. And it was just, again, it was another example of an individual who went above and beyond what they really were expected to. She called the pilot, told them to hold things, they're going to add another passenger. So they opened the, opened the door and let me in. No, I just sort of fell back into the, you know, the, the mode of what I have done so many times, whether it be with racing or working late. I, I stay awake, but my mind goes to sleep. I kept being brought back to thinking about my dad and whether I'd be in time. Nothing really had changed. He was still kind of teetering, still alive. The flight went smoothly. The plane landed in Seattle, and John sat waiting in the back of the plane, ready to deboard. The pilot made an announcement that everybody please keep their seat. So they ushered me off first. They didn't know why they were being told to stay seated. I saw in the eyes of many, at least I think I saw, that they understood. I was going to go out and try to catch a cab, but uh, waiting outside in the airport, outside of the, the exit to the plane, was uh, a friend of mine, a police officer named Brian Summers. I was surprised to see him. Well, John had been flying home, his childhood friend, Ken, had been arranging for quick transportation to Jack's hospital. When I called the Normandy Park Police, the officer that was on duty that night, they patched me through to him, and when I started talking, he knew exactly who I was talking about. He, he knew John and Jack, and uh, he said, I would be honored to go uh, take care of that. And he said, uh, sounds like you need a ride somewhere, and escorted me out, out of the airport into his car, and he got me to the hospital. I thanked him and he said, good luck. And this is always the hardest part. Still haven't gotten over it. So I found his room and with all my gear hanging off of me and the smell of three weeks in the canyon on me. Dad surrounded by family and friends. Not looking anything like I left him. He'd been destroyed by this cancer. His eyes were sunken. But they were open. And as I walked in the room, I walked up to him, I leaned down, wrapped my arms around his head, and I said, I'm home, Dad. And he gave me a little smile. Dad lived about another 30 hours. 
just after midnight with myself, my brother, and Ken present. Dad took his final breath. Back home weather's got you down Looking to move on and skip town I think his dad was so relieved to to have John there by his bedside, you know, when John made it. And uh, had it not been for a handful of folks getting involved and things just kind of lining up just right, he might not have made it in, you know, the the time frame that he did and may not have been there by his dad's side when uh, when he passed. It was a hell of a trip getting back. It was almost like it was scripted. So many people came together and helped out that made this trip possible. And uh, I certainly didn't expect it. And so I don't know if they saw the determination or if it was just damn dumb luck. Being raised the way I was raised, everybody treated everybody with respect. Somewhere along the lines, that's that's been lost. And so for me, it was... It was like a rebirth of, of the belief that, yeah, people can be, can be good and they can help out. In retrospect, I'm glad I went, but even more so, I'm glad I got home in time. Many thanks to John, Ken, Joanna, Tim, and Brian, and all the folks that helped us connect with them to tell this story. Music Day by Amy Stolzenbach, Odeth, The King in the Yellow, Woodrow Gerber, Caribou, and Matt Mays, courtesy of Mevio's Music Alley. Support for the Diaries comes from you. Big thanks to everyone who has pledged their support. Want to set it and forget it? Now you can, with a yearly renewal. Thanks for the listeners who brought that up to us. Click on the pledge button on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. We've been overwhelmed by the support. The Diaries would not be possible without the good people at Patagonia. Their legacy collection includes iconic clothing from their first 40 years, but reinterpreted with modern materials like organic cotton and recycled polyester. Find it at patagonia.com. With aluminum construction and sleek design, Kuat Racks is designing bike racks for you, their fellow riders in mind. You can see their full lineup at kuatracks.com. This is the little company that could. And support for the show also comes from New Belgium, who encourages you to follow your folly. This episode of the Dirtbag Diaries was produced by Becca Call, Jen Altschel, and me, Fitz Cahal. Thanks for tuning in. Take your time. Enjoy the view. Don't let get to you.